what's the most difficult thing that you work with in your lives? Is there anyone here who doesn't feel those self-esteem or hasn't suffered from that? Me? Absolutely no. <laughs> I noticed when I lived in African countries and uh, some of the Asian countries too that that's not such a problem but certainly in our society it is in the monastic training we work very much as you can see opposite to worldly currents like in the world where greed is promoted in monastic life we go in the opposite direction having to give up and let go simplify physical and on the relationship end of things as well like you start off being very junior well I guess that happens in lay life because when we're children we're at the bottom of the scale but certainly as an adult everyone wants equal equal rights but in the monastery we we don't necessarily have equal rights especially as nuns or equal treatment which is very disturbing to western eyes in in lay life freedom is very important the freedom to be greedy <laughs> or to get what you want or to stay away from the things you don't like like when you hung, you're hungry you just go to the fridge and get something but in the monastery we certainly spend a lot of time paying attention to what we are doing and the ways that we're doing it and how it's always being pointed out to us when we're acting in in ways that confuse and cause chaos or disturbance to to the community so looking at some of the details of that not that the physical components of our life help us to avoid getting caught up in greed hatred and delusion it's I think I believe always it's going to be our relationship to what we do what we have and to what's going on in our minds but I think that the rites and rituals some of the restrictions and in particular the renunciation of monastic life does help us to become aware of our greed our, our ill will and our confused ways for example there are four things four requisites for our life for my life uh, I should start with food food robes shelter and medicine those are the four is that true in my life do you think food clothing shelter and medicine so it's very similar but just look at the differences for example food we eat only in the morning so afternoon we don't eat or if we eat it's just little tiny pieces of cheese or something you can't eat a lot of it or you get sick then certainly with the higher ordination and if you take on bodhisattva training you have many restrictions on what kind of food with the eight precepts not so much certainly with the samaneras bhikkhu samaneri bhikkhuni training 
there are certain foods that you, you just can't eat. For example, it has to be offered in the right way, as you saw this morning, those of you who stayed. We eat with an alms bowl. We can't just get something out of the fridge and munch on it. Well, we couldn't get it out of the fridge, but if supposing you gave me something, I can't just stand there and munch on it. I have to sit down and make a blessing on the food, bring my awareness, bring up a sense of gratitude. Normally, at breakfast time, we don't use our bowls, but some, in some traditions, they do. So everything goes in the bowl, and then, if there is anything, sometimes there's not. If you're lucky, you get offered food, and goes in your bowl, and then you eat it. If the food is not offered properly at the right time, before noon, in the right way, so that it's put into your hands, then you can't eat it without committing an offense. So there's the food, but if it's not given at the right time, in the right way, if you stored it up overnight, there are so many rules around the food. For those who, who do accept meat, then there's many kinds of meat that are not allowed. So then you have to make sure that the lay people know. And that's not always possible. There have been times when, even though the person who was feeding me knew there was no food around where we were that matched the requirements. So I would end up eating just plain rice. You're supposed to eat food. You're a human being. There's so much restriction, you would think it's just suffering. But in a way, the practice around this food is not so that we suffer, but it's so that we live with mindfulness. And that around all this renunciation, we develop gratitude. It's a vehicle. Now, as householders, most people don't take on this kind of practice. So, when I suppose by looking at, at the way that I live, you might either think that it's, it's extreme or it's, it's a kind of fanaticism or madness or why on earth would you want to do that? Does anyone think that? No? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> My father thought so. <laughs> he used to ask me, why couldn't you be a Tibetan nun? Then at least you could eat in the evening. But you do find that it does test the limits of one's patience many times it tests the limits of one's mental calm. It pushes the boundaries a lot. Even when you think that you've, you've got it sussed and you don't feel hungry, you don't eat till the next day, but you manage fine and you don't feel hungry, if the people that are supposed to offer you the meal don't show up and then you have to go another day without eating, then how do you feel? There's always some kind of conditions that happen in this training which stretch the boundary even more. The result of that is that it tests your commitment to this practice, this training, and to working with mind states that are quite negative, can be very negative, and not beating yourself over the head because you, you, you get worried or anxious or 
how many times I felt unequal to the task because it's only normal if you're a human being and you're not getting fed how are you going to keep going and then you of course the mind starts to go into the future I can't do this I don't have the strength etc 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 and the practice is what right the present moment and if you get caught up in those kind of thoughts of course you can't live this life you can't carry on the training but the training is to observe with mindfulness states of mind emotional states feelings of pain or pleasure they're arising in cessation in the moment moment by moment all the time and not identify with them so if we're doing the practice even when it gets hard and all the limits are pushed and we're being challenged in a way that most people don't have to be challenged we also have this constant reminder that shakes us up and makes us realize well I've had this happen where I'm standing there with my bowl and my bowl is empty and there's no guarantee that anybody's going to put anything in it and the only thing I have to reflect on is that the bowl is empty but my mind is full full of what? it's full of rubbish <laughs> it's full of negativity and if my mind is negative who's going to want to put food in my bowl? that's what I discovered and then I also discovered that even if somebody fed me and I received that food with such a negative mind I wouldn't feel very worthy of getting it so then the reminder of looking at this empty bowl is not why is my bowl empty because that's very negative that's that's greed and that's ill will it's, it's aversion to the whole situation it doesn't help the food isn't going to get there any faster but what I can fill my bowl with is faith faith that well I might not get fed today but I can give up this meal just to contemplate a sense of I can get the lesson that the bowl is empty and my mind is full of rubbish can I empty my mind like this bowl I'm not going to starve if I project into the future and I say what if this happens every day I will starve and then I'll just have a fearful mind what I'm really pointing to is that this particular training is is so profound that if we use it skillfully even when things look very dark we do have the tools to remember and it's about remembering to pay attention to the present bring up a positive state of mind let go of the negativity and generate qualities of gratitude a generosity of heart faith because faith comes from a heart that is feeling at peace and grateful and content with whatever the conditions are so yeah if you're sick that's very difficult it's very difficult I'm not saying this is easy I'm just saying there's a way there's a way that we can do it we have to be able to be very patient incredibly courageous and forgiving when we can't when, when, when we just weep 
with frustration or fall down in, neg in negativity or um, feel very sorry for ourselves and get discouraged. There are ways to pick ourselves up again. For example, look at the, the robe. Every day I wake up, I'm wearing this robe. It's always the same color, my favorite color. If it wasn't my favorite color, I'd be in trouble. <laughs> and I love my robes. I always remember the Buddha. I always remember the, the bhikkhunis that practiced in those days. The, the, the work that they did on themselves in very trying situations. I remember the teachings over and over again when I wake up and it's time for me to get dressed and I put on my robes. And there's a particular way of putting on the robes. You can't just sloppily... Many of our rules govern how we wear the robe. They have to be even all around and they, they can't be drooping or hanging or... We have to look dignified. If we look sloppy, are you going to have faith? If you see one of the robes dragging along the ground or something like that, or if I drool all over my clothes, my robes when I eat, this doesn't, in it doesn't inspire faith. As I get older, it's harder not to do that. <laughs> Practice forgiveness. The other day, I was sitting at the kitchen table at Janice's house and talking about my rules and I have my rules uh, in a very nicely bound little notebook which I printed off and made by myself and they're holy to me even though it's a draft because I have to make corrections to me it's something very precious and I brought it out and put it on wiped the table carefully and we started reading and going through some of the rules and she had a lot of questions and I got all excited Someone's interested in this because for most people who aren't practicing these rules, it is pretty heavy duty. And then uh, it was five o'clock and she made a hot drink. And then she offered me some dark chocolate, one of our allowables. So completely mindless. Now, I took a piece of chocolate and started chewing it. And a little bit of chocolate went onto the book of my rules. And I felt such shame and remorse that I quickly wiped it up. And I was very embarrassed that I could be so mindless with this, this book that is so sacred to me, so holy. That's how it is. You're sitting around, you're having a lovely sharing. It all feels so wonderful and so easy to lose mindfulness. But if I were to just keep on beating myself over the head, and even though it felt very bad, but then you have to forgive yourself and just remember, don't do that again. Don't just pull out your Vinaya book and on the kitchen table because even if you cleared it off nicely, the danger is always there. The same way in the meditation hall. Here we are sitting in front of the shrine. This is not a temple. So it's very easy to forget because when we're not here, this is not a meditation room. And people come in here with their shoes, they drink drinks, they have conferences and talks, so it's not got the same kind of ambiance as a temple. We don't have the same 
etiquette around the practice as we do in a monastery or in a temple. That's normal. But then when we don't live up to our standard with minor things, we have to really forgive ourselves. And this training, even though it's so strict, is grounded in forgiveness, is oiled by forgiveness. doesn't work if we can't be forgiven. There are, of course, some rules that if we break them, we're out. You're just not eligible because it's too gross, it's too coarse. You're not meant to be in in the monastic life. It's as simple as that. And that's in body and speech and mind as well. But there's always forgiveness for any of the lesser, minor offenses. And there are so many rules that are just conventions. They're not ethical precepts. You're not a morally bad person if you dribble chocolate on your Vinaya book. So when you do things in your life that you feel embarrassed about or sorry about, try to cultivate forgiveness, but also try not to repeat that behavior. That's very important. If there's no training, then how can we possibly deepen ourselves and grow in wisdom? which is one of the qualities that most supports us on the spiritual path, as does loving-kindness and generosity. And, of course, they go together. Then the the third area is shelter, for example. With shelter, somebody asked me, somebody expressed to me the other day about couple of lay people who had tried living as mendicants and they kept roaming from place to place thinking that because we've gone forth from home into homelessness we're, we don't have a home but we always do have shelter especially in a cold climate you can't train without some stability and certainly for the first five years of monastic life we are expected to spend those five years training with the same teacher hopefully an enlightened master or someone very very respected in the world someone very highly revered someone who keeps ethical precepts and who is impeccable in their morals and who who is proven in wisdom someone who has lived probably many years and has had other disciples whom we have observed and respected. So it's not about ascetic practice where you go live under the roots of a tree, but the whole time you're just overwhelmed with negative mind states. But some stability, at least for five years, and then the monks, like you've heard of the Tudong practice in Thailand, where the monks will wander through the jungle every day. They, they just go from village to village and collect alms. But as women, that's a very difficult thing to do. Certainly, um, many of the bhikkhuni precepts, we have about 80 or 90 precepts more than the monks, and some of those are because we're more vulnerable and require protection, which, you know, for men is not so necessary. 
But shelter is defined as a roof over the head for one night. So even if we are in the same monastery for five years, we might be asked to change rooms every few months. Why is that? Attachment? Attachment, of course. You get your little nest and you collect bits and pieces and maybe you don't clean up very well. You know, you just hang out in there with all your collected habits. So every few months we, we change rooms, if not monasteries. But we have the same teacher, the same routine, the same training. It takes years and years to learn how to use these four requisites. The last one being the medicines. This is an area where lots of people like to find justifications for why something isn't allowable in the afternoon. But with the medicines, the idea was the Buddha didn't want his students to starve. But he wanted us to have some support in the evening in case we did feel weakness or sickness. And many of these rules are prefaced with when not ill. If you're not ill, then when you're listening to a Dharma talk, you should sit on the floor in a certain position. When not ill. When not ill, you shouldn't wear a head covering. But older people should sit in a chair. And if you're cold, you should cover your head. So many of the rules are when not ill, do this way. When ill, take some of the tonics that were allowed. In, in our ordination, some of the tonics that we were told we would have to take from, from the day we take the precepts until we die is cow's urine. I think it's fermented cow's urine. It's actually a very powerful medicine. I've had it. It is a, an ancient, uh, powerful, but I, I don't recommend it necessarily. <laughs> However, one of the things that's very important to recognize with, with all of these things is that it's possible to take up such a strict training because we have a very powerful commitment. But it's also possible because we see the results. So if you practice with a lot of restriction and a lot of renunciation, you begin to see powerful results. And if you practice with a little bit of commitment, a little bit of renunciation, you see a little bit of results. If you practice with no commitment and no renunciation, I think you know the answer. So contemplate attachment and contemplate what does it take to wean ourselves away from the things we're attached to the addictions, the pleasant experiences, what do they really give us in the end? What do they give us of lasting value? What does a commitment to generosity, to loving kindness, and to wisdom give us in the end? And just reflect in those ways and see where we can make steps to, to take up more training and renounce to a greater degree. 
stability in the practice. In our training, this having a, a, a roof over the head for one night and having a stable place from which to practice is very important in lay life too. So if you want stability from which to grow, don't go from training to training. Don't go from practice to practice, but do something regularly in your life so that your mind can also find a place of rest. Just as you would need shelter physically. We don't sit at the roots of trees in freezing weather. But on a nice day, you might go and meditate out under a tree. In the same way, if you live in a noisy place and it's hard for you to meditate, find a group or find somewhere where you can go regularly with like-minded people to meditate and to practice in quiet conditions so that you can experience a little bit of tranquility in your heart. That kind of stability will support you If your mind is very noisy and very upset, try to find conditions or friends or activities in your life that will support an inner stability. How are you going to do that? Well, you have to look around and see how do you spend your time. Generosity towards yourself is not only by giving yourself the things that make you feel good, But it's by giving yourself experiences or conditions that support those wise, generous, and loving qualities in your heart, such as good friends, a meditation practice, healthy food, a less hectic and chaotic lifestyle, less following the greed in your heart, just examining what, how you spend your time every day. What are you running after? Where are you driving around all the time? How do we drive ourselves at work? What are our goals and expectations of each other, of ourselves? Just to contemplate, contemplate, contemplate. And then move in the ways that lighten the load and that enlighten the mind. Just as we do when we sit down to meditate, we need a stable place to land. That's the breath. We need a stable seat to meditate on. That's the beginning of our posture. And in life, we need shelter as well. And the best shelter is simple. You don't need much. We have to give up a lot of the rubbish that we're carrying around to empty out the poisons, not only in the mind, but in our life. Let go of friends that have a bad influence on you. That's another way of emptying out. Spend more time with friends that protect your good qualities and look after you. Be generous in ways that that it's not just saying thank you to somebody when when they're nice to you. But spend time with somebody who's in trouble, someone who's depressed. Share the good things in your life. Share your wisdom or your knowledge or your your loving kindness. Lend a hand, even if you have no time. Give up your own pleasurable evening to go and be with your old mother 
who might be very lonely, even if you don't like her. And she's old and she's, she needs some company. So many ways that we can develop these qualities. So these four requisites help us in our training. And I think in lay life, we also have these kind of things. We have food, we have clothing, we have shelter, we have medicines. How do we use them? How much do we collect? How much variety of food do we need to satisfy our hunger? How many clothes have you got stuffed in your cupboard that you never use anymore? How many different shoes? Belts, scarves, how many dishes, how many, etc., etc. What is the real medicine that we need? Is it another pill? Is it a drug? Is it drink? Is it food to make ourselves feel happy? How much TV? How much entertainment? How many friends? How, how popular do we have to be to feel good about ourselves? How many magazines do we have to read and devour? How much news? How much sports? How much jogging do we have to do to be healthy? Is it just a kind of filling up our time? Is it overkill, overdone? So a little bit of renunciation. That may have negative connotations in our society. But people are not happy without renunciation. Just look around. In this modern world, we have everything ad nauseum. And we are suffering levels of misery that we've never perhaps known before. Look how successful the psychotherapy center is as a, a barometer of that. I wanted to read something to you. This is a kind of prayer and it's from Rabindranath Tagore. In Buddhism, you, you might say, oh, we don't pray. But we do pray all the time. Every time we say, may all beings be well, may all beings be happy. We don't have to worry about whether we're praying to a divine being or a divine force or a, a universal benevolence or an anything. We're sending out the goodness of our hearts, our most noble intentions to one another to all beings everywhere. Starting with ourselves. As the formal practice goes, first we always begin by radiating loving kindness in our own being. Let me not pray to be sheltered from dangers, but to be fearless in facing them. Let me not beg for the stilling of my pain but for the heart to overcome it. Let me not look for allies in life's battlefield, but to my own strength. Let me not crave in anxious fear to be saved, but hope for the patience to win my freedom. 
May I not be a coward feeling mercy and benevolence in my success alone. But let me find the grasp of that divine hand in my failure. Remember forgiveness at every step. When you feel that you can't do it, raise yourself up and remember your own power, your own beauty. Remember that we come from beauty, we come from love, we go towards that beauty, we go towards that love. Let's do a little chant together.